Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 to 36. So have your Bibles open there, if you will. Welcome to Christ the King as we continue in this sermon series in 1 and 2 Samuel, which we've only just started. Now with two weeks spent in chapters 1 and 2, and this being the third Sunday as we complete chapter 2. And for those of you who were not here last week, or if you were but need some reminding, <clears throat> last week we considered the birth of Samuel, son of Elkanah, but more to the point, as we discussed, son of Hannah's faith. And Hannah made a vow, you remember, in verse 11 of chapter 1. O Lord of hosts, she prayed, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And the Lord did remember. And true to her promise, a few years later, she and Elkanah brought the boy to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And there Samuel, son of Elkanah, of the tribe of Levi was lent to the Lord. And so the end of verse 28 of chapter 1 says, and he, that is Samuel, he worshipped the Lord there. Who is this boy? <laughs> or who would this boy become? Why start the story here? Why, when Israel remains at this time given into the hands of the Philistines, going back to Judges chapter 13, verse 1, when it says, the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Why, in that time, focus on this boy now worshiping at Shiloh? And the answer we see in this morning's text is because the primary enemy of Israel isn't the Philistines. It's not an external military threat that poses the greatest danger to the people of Yahweh. Instead, our text this morning reveals a more sinister and a more deadly enemy, a cancer at the very spiritual heart of the people in her priests who were responsible for teaching the people and mediating their prayers and sacrifices to God. And you remember a couple weeks ago, we spent a lot of the sermon surveying and considering parts of the book of Judges. And judges demonstrated that military victories over outside oppressors wasn't sufficient to bring blessing to Israel. Not when its spiritual condition is cold. So Judges ends by saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But let's make sure this point is clear at the outset of our time in Samuel. The nation of Israel needed more than a king. Even a godly one like David, it needed the guidance of the Lord. 
It needed the word of the Lord. It needed a complete cleansing in its priestly leadership and a revival of the prophetic voice. And I don't want to steal any thunder from next week, but just look one verse beyond where our text ended this morning. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, 1 Samuel 3, 1 begins the same way our text did this morning. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. But then note the rest of the verse. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare. Brothers and sisters, that is the crisis Israel was in when the book of Samuel begins. It's not fundamentally a political or military crisis. It's a spiritual crisis. Israel was starving for the guidance of the living God. The God who had liberated it from Egyptian slavery, planted it in the land promised to Abraham. And that's why the book of Samuel opens not on the battlefield with the Philistines. We'll get there. But in Shiloh, where a boy is worshiping the Lord. For it is in that boy, it is in faithful Hannah's son, that new faithful leadership would emerge. And chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel really belong together, but we're considering them over two weeks' time here. Chapter 2, verses 11 and following, present the religious corruption at Shiloh and reveal God's judgment against it. But all the while, there's something else going on. And we aren't just told about how evil the priests at Shiloh were. We're made aware all through chapter 2 in preparation for chapter 3 that something else is happening. That Samuel's there. Quietly there in the text, growing up in Shiloh. And Samuel isn't like them. Notice these moments in the text. Samuel is not the focus of chapter 2. He will be the focus of chapter 3 next week. But Samuel's there in chapter 2. He's there in verse 11. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And it's there in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And it's there in the end of verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And it's there in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And it's just beyond the edge of our passage this morning in chapter 3, verse 1, as we read a moment ago. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And I point all that out to you, because even as we consider the worthless men of Shiloh and the judgment of the Lord, we do well to note that quietly Yahweh's at work, providing a new leader, preparing for the return of his word. Do you remember how Hannah's prayer, how the conclusion to Hannah's prayer began in verse 9 of chapter 2? She prays, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. 
but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. It strikes me that would be a reasonable summary of what we find in 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 to 36. There are three sections in this passage of 11 to 36 that are marked off structurally by those mentions of Samuel that I just took you through. There's three scenes that show a progression. In the first scene in verses 12 to 17, we have the description of Eli's sons. And then in the second scene, verses 22 to 25, we have Eli's response. And then in the third scene, verses 27 to 36, we have the Lord's judgment. So walk through these with me and see where the Lord takes us. It's in verse 12 then that we begin. And it's in verse 12, friends, that we discover right up front the root of everything that's going on. Because the narrator tells us, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And I know it's only one verse in, but stop for a minute. And consider the significance of verse 12b. They did not know the Lord. These are the priests in Shiloh we're talking about. This is like saying the Pope did not know Jesus. This is where the house of the Lord was, where the ark was. This is supposed to be the spiritual center of the people of God. These are the sons of Eli, the priest in charge at Shiloh. They did not know the Lord. Now, obviously, they knew about the Lord. They're priests. The point isn't that they lacked information. The point is that they did not have a relationship with the Lord. And I mean that in a technical sense. I think the language means they were not in covenant relationship with the Lord. Or perhaps more accurately, they were not in faithful covenant relationship with the Lord. And you know this biblically, and we're going to come back to this again and again in Samuel, and in fact, not before long, pretty strongly. But let re me remind you that to know the Lord is a matter of the heart. To be in covenant relationship with the Lord is a matter of the heart of our volitional selves. Everywhere in the Bible, this is true. Consider, for example, a passage that I know is far in the future here, but Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7, where Jeremiah now speaking to the exiles from Judah, but listen to the connections in this promise made to them as the prophet speaks the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 24, verse 7, I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And we've read it many times before, but then what becomes the essence of the new covenant promise that's made just a few chapters later in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33? 
For this is the covenant that I will make, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And listen to this. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, declares the Lord. What more profound statement could the narrator of Samuel make than this? The priests at Shiloh did not know the Lord. And we can look at all the sins they committed, we will briefly, the judgment that will be theirs. But we cannot confuse the specific sins with the fundamental problem that the sins are the fruit of the reality stated in verse 12. They did not know the Lord. So verses 13 to 16 then itemize what's happening here. And then verse 17 of our text summarizes that. So first look ahead there to the summary in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 2. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Well, of course they did. If they didn't know the Lord, why take seriously the offering of the Lord? Why not just make it something that's for your benefit rather than for the Lord? And that's exactly what they did. Two things here are mentioned in verses 13 through 16 of 1 Samuel 2. First, they had servants who would come and plunge this three-pronged fork into the boiling meat of the sacrifice. And then verse 14 says, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Which isn't what's supposed to happen. As one commentator puts it, the zevach, that's the Hebrew word here, the zevach was an offering wherein the majority of the meat was released to be eaten by the sacrificer and his family. Only the fat was burned on the altar to God with priests being allowed to take portions of it. So that you get texts such as Deuteronomy 18 verse 3 which says this, Deuteronomy 18 verse 3, and this shall be the priests due from the people from those offering a sacrifice, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, which isn't what we have here, right? They had servants come with a three-pronged fork. Now, why, why provide a detail like that in this text? Well, because the point is, that that kind of fork was used to ensure that the maximum of large pieces of meat could be retrieved with a single powerful thrust. It's literally this, literally a flesh hook of three teeth, okay? It's not some dainty fork. <laughs> and the point is the priests are taking what isn't theirs. Which is similar to the second offense that's mentioned then in verses 15 and 16, only now it's more serious because whereas in 13 and 14 they took from what was rightly the sacrificer's portions, here they take from what belonged to the Lord. 
because the fatty portions of the meat are the Lord's. That's the concept. The best part is offered to the Lord. So you read texts such as Leviticus chapter 3. Don't turn there, just listen. Leviticus chapter 3, texts like this that describe the peace offering. And it runs through different animals that are, could be offered. And just listen as I pick this up in verse 12 of Leviticus 3, which happens to be discussing a goat offering. Leviticus 3 verse 12. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron, don't forget that, the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys and the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. How about that for a bumper sticker? <laughs> Not a bad idea, actually. Or maybe a church vision statement. All fat is the Lord's. And it's a bit humorous. But my point is that this may seem to you like obscure stuff. The point is, it isn't. The point is, it's perfectly clear. So that in verse 16 of this text, who is it that knows what's happening here isn't right? It's the man bringing the sacrifice. Right? He says... Let them burn the fat first. What's he asking them to do? He's asking them to let his offering come to the Lord. Let them, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, which isn't what's supposed to happen anyway. And the priest's servant would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. I mean, do you see that? It's blatant disregard for the Lord and his word. They're not just getting some technicality wrong and God's upset about it. It's the whole point. It's the whole point of the offering that they're disregarding. And they've made it something that's for them and not for the Lord. And it's damaging. Can you just imagine the spiritual health of the people of Israel bringing sacrifices to Shiloh? And they can't bring these sacrifices to the Lord. It's a perversion. And it's a conscious choice to regard Yahweh's laws as worthless. And I'm reminded of Paul's judgment that he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, of course, in Paul's context of Judgment on those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But same reality, Paul says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, 
with minds set on earthly things. And there you are. I need to pick things up. There's a shift then in the text. And you get this brief section of commentary on Samuel and Hannah in verses 18 to 21. And it's a wonderful few verses. And it's in contrast, of course, with these worthless men, right? Samuel was ministering before the Lord, the author says. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. And Hannah, I think this is a quite touching detail. Hannah brings him a new robe year by year. Why? Because he's growing up. His robes don't fit year to year. She brings him a new one. I find that moving. And the Lord blesses Hannah and Elkanah with more children. And verse 21 concludes this little interim. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And I won't say more except to comment that already Samuel's being prepared to take over. Right? He's not a priest. Primarily Samuel's presented as a prophet in this book, but he's the one wearing the linen ephod here, right? He will step into the gap. He's the one here who's pictured as faithful, even as he's growing towards his own relationship with the Lord in these priestly manners. And then parenthetically, he's not in this service, but let me encourage you to ask Father John about the ephod, because we met at our pastoral team meeting this week, and I've never met someone who could give me the chapter and verse on the significance of the linen ephod, but John does. John can do it. And you should ask him next you see him, what's the significance of that? Well, we come then to the second scene of the passage here in verses 22 to 25. And given the way that verse 22 begins, it seems likely now that some time has passed now, Eli was very old, it says. And then notice this. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And the way that's put matters, right? Because the point is that what was going on wasn't new news to Eli. He kept hearing about it, the text says. For how long? How many years had this kind of thing been going on? It's horrific, and it turns out it's not just the mistreatment of the sacrifices. Look at the end of verse 22. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Like they were Canaanites, right? It's common knowledge common knowledge about the priests at the temple, at the tent of meeting. The sons of Eli had turned the tabernacle into a place where sin was committed rather than confessed, which is a repulsive abuse of power. But here's another arguably more foundational problem. Eli did nothing. He kept hearing about it and he did nothing. Until now, he's very old, the text says. He's the priest in charge. He could have stopped it. He didn't. And we come back to that big time next week in chapter 3 with part of what Samuel says to Eli, if you know it, from the Lord, directly from the Lord on this matter. But for now, we'll leave that for next week. But just look at verse 24. He finally says something, Eli. 
though he still does nothing. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. No good report. No kidding. What is Eli more concerned with at this point? What others are saying or what his sons are doing? It's not even clear. He does seem to move a little more in the right direction in verse 25 when he says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him, he says. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? That is not an in entirely clear exactly what that means, to be honest. But the sense is that when wrong is done between man and man, God may settle that dispute, perhaps as many think through appointed human judges, as was the way that things were set up at that time. But that blatant defiance of Yahweh would place them beyond help, Eli warns. And he's right. Which is why verse 25 concludes, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death which I think simply means this, the game's up. It's too late, Eli. The decision's been made. The new leader's in the wings. How long had all this been going on? Eli hadn't said anything before, it seems. Their contempt for the Lord's offering, their flagrant immorality. Listen, there are circumstances in which God gives up on people and determines that there is no alternative to judgment any longer. And all he has to do is give them over to their sinful hearts. Now, of course, to someone who repents, God wouldn't say, I won't forgive you. But sometimes repentance is a gift of God that he has to offer people. And God can decide to stop offering it and to leave them to the consequences of their actions. And so it was, I understand, for Hophni and Phineas and for Eli too. And so it is to those consequences that we turn in the final section of our passage, beginning here in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli, the text says. We have no idea who this is. It's a remarkable thing. We know nothing about this. But suddenly, out of nowhere, a man of God comes with a word of God. And just follow along. I was saying to John before the first service that this could become a whole separate sermon, just this part of the text, but it won't become that. Just track very quickly. Verses 27 and 28 are the introduction that describe the provisions and the grace that the Lord has given in the past, right? There's two questions and a statement here. Did I reveal myself to the house of your father? Probably referring to Aaron. Remember, it's the sons of Aaron. When they were in Egypt? Yes, you did. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Yes, you did. Then comes the statement. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. What's the point being made? Eli, your house was given all the privileges and the gifts. All my offerings I gave you. 
Note that, my offerings, not theirs. And you want more? You want the parts that aren't yours? It's overweening greed. It's a rejection of what the Lord has provided as not enough. You want more. And so then comes the accusation in verse 29. And just look at this. Why then? Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? And the Hebrew reads, why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offerings? And the verb is plural, meaning that Eli and his sons are included here in that. And then it, it shifts to the singular and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves, again now in the plural, fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Eli chose his kids over God. Do you hear that? Eli chose his kids over God. He didn't restrain them, which in this context means something very specific because he's the priest with authority at Shiloh. He could have stopped them. He didn't stop them, which means he kicked at the offerings of the Lord too. And he was happy to personally profit from what they were doing too. And Eli fattened himself on the offerings. He wouldn't stand against corruption perhaps because it benefited him too. Which means there will be judgment. You can't live that way and escape it, friends. The Lord will not allow it. You cannot live greedy, selfish lives, ignoring the word of the Lord and be okay. Verse 30 then is the judgment. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed, which I think maybe should be translated a bit stronger. Maybe those who disrespect me are treated with contempt. That would be a possible translation there. And indeed they will. And we're out of time, but you can just see from the rest of the text that it means the decimation of Eli's family line. There will not be an old man in your house forever. And there's only one, it says in verse 33, only one who is not cut off. And I understand that to be a reference to Abiathar, who we come to in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. So you wait a while and you get to Abiathar. He's the one who's not cut off, but then later on, he's banished by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2. And it says there explicitly in 1 Kings 2 that the prophecy against Eli in Shiloh was fulfilled. And the bottom line is, it's the end. It's the end for Eli and his line. It's game over. which says to me that part of the point of this text for us to recognize is the dead seriousness with which God takes his honor and his name. And that goes for you too, Christian. The great sin of Hophni and Phinehas is that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The great sin of Eli is that he scorned the Lord's sacrifices and honored his sons above God. 
And in both cases, it is the blatant disregard for the word of the Lord. They scorned the sacrifices the Lord commanded, verse 29 says. They did not know the Lord, and so they disregarded his word, you see. The blessings and the provisions which were theirs, they treated as insufficient. They lived for themselves. They saw others as instruments for their pleasure. They were not faithful, in other words. And the Lord will judge accordingly. And I know this is an ancient Israel, and Roger doesn't have his three-pronged fork with him that I know of. But this hasn't changed. Do you know the Lord? Here's the test of that. How do you respond to his word, both in your private and your public life? Hebrews chapter 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You hear it? And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, Hebrews 4, verses 11 to 13. Well, this isn't the end, of course. This human resistance and this disobedience, it will not stymie Yahweh's purpose. In time, the Lord does remove Hophni and Phinehas, who die at the same day by the hands of the Philistines. He will provide faithful leadership in their place. Verse 35, to end our time this morning. The man of God says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. You hear that language? Now watch what's next. A faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And some think this is about Samuel. I don't think it's primarily about Samuel, though I do think Samuel becomes the next faithful one who fills in and takes the place of Hophni and Phinehas, if you will. But it's much later in the story, in 1 Kings chapter 2, when I mentioned Abiathar, the one who is then banished from the line of Eli, when another priest is installed. His name is Zadok, and it's his line who would serve the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem. Yahweh will have a faithful priest. He insists on it. The prophecy will be fulfilled. But in fact, while I don't think it's the reference of verse 35 explicitly, it's as we look even further ahead that we might recognize that the faithful priest whom God finally raises up, well, I think that has to be Jesus. He who became, according to our same book of Hebrews, the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people all of it 
so that we can know the Lord too and live faithfully in covenant with him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.